Hello, I'm Rose Pierre-Louis, Chief Operating Officer of the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University. Welcome to a new episode of Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative. Our guest for this episode is Sean Dove. No conversation about changing the narrative for Black boys and men is complete without him. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, Really excited to uh, be here and uh, anything for my uh, McSilver family and uh, for you. Thank you so much. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, You have created this incredible organization, the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, that has uh, national standing, really uh, well recognized. But take us back. What what was your what were the origins of the organization? What was the um, the catalyst for creating such a, an incredible, creating this vision and building? Sure, sure. Order? I uh, can take you back 400 years <laughs> if we uh, <laughs> sure. need to go back uh, that far when we uh, just, you know, look at black people's experience uh, here in the United States. And, you know, uh, ironically, we uh, celebrate, well, I don't even know if celebrating is the right word, but acknowledging uh, the 400th year that uh, Africans were uh, brought here here uh, um, and to the shores of uh, Jamestown, uh, Virginia. But, you know, I think it's really important to highlight that uh, I didn't start the campaign. You know, I have the title of uh, founder. Uh, I uh, was the uh, founding campaign manager at the Open Society Foundation with uh, the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. And, you know, the origin, particularly at Open Society Foundations, uh, really started with a New York Times uh, article um, in March of 2006. Uh, Cover story, uh, top fold, left cover. Column, uh, article by Eric Eckholm, and the headline was The Plight of Black Men Deepens. And uh, in this article, it really lifted up uh, really depressing and staggering uh, data around black men and boys in the United States. Uh, for every positive indicator, uh, we were at the bottom, and every negative uh, indicator, we were at the top. And uh, that was one of those articles that, you know, made its rounds in folks' email boxes and, uh, you know, went viral. And it ignited a viral conversation at the Open Society Foundations uh, at the time, which is the philanthropy of uh, George Soros. And um, this conversation was... uh, debated both on the staff and the board level. And the thread arose with something like this. Uh, if uh, the Open Society Foundations was indeed a foundation with the uh, values of uh, open society, uh, democratic uh, uh, leadership, and really advance and, and supporting most marginalized uh, populations across the country, there were folks at the foundation asking, why aren't we at the front end of this uh, uh, crisis and this issue in the United States? And interestingly, um, you know, Open Society Foundation's uh, U.S. uh, philanthropy really was rooted in the criminal justice uh, system, right, and helping to shape the reentry field. And uh, the retort to that question, why aren't we engaged in this, folks will say, well, we are. Uh, we're investing $20 million a year in uh, criminal justice, and uh, it's mostly black men. And that was like where the record, you know, would screech, right? right? And so the 
counter and the debate was, well, here's an opportunity for us to invest on the front end of the prison pipeline. And as foundations do, hired consultants, did a, uh, uh, um, a concept paper, and I really have to lift up uh, Alvin Starks, who mm-hmm. was a uh, program officer at the time, leading their racial justice uh, uh, portfolio. And uh, leadership happens on all levels of uh, uh, institutions, right? You don't necessarily have to have the big uh, uh, title, but on the staff level, uh, uh, Alvin and a number of other folks really push to uh, shift uh, how uh, Open Society Foundations was making its investments uh, around this issue. And on the board level, uh, we had folks like Lonnie Guineer, mm. who had uh, just published a book with uh, Gerald Torres, the uh, miners, uh, the miners canary, the canary in the mine. And uh, we also had Jeff Canada on the, on the board. And, you know, you've been in board meetings. Sometimes all it takes is one or two uh, influential individuals. And uh, we were able to, I hadn't joined the foundation at that point. Uh, but uh, the board convinced uh, George Soros to uh, launch a three-year uh, campaign for black male achievement. And now philanthropy is, you know, yeah. we're taking a generational, centuries-long issue, and we're going to slap a three-year grant-making cycle uh, on that uh, on that issue. Um, how I got there, um, I remember the day uh, vividly. Well, in the, uh, you know, January of 2008, I, I began to get emails from uh, folks in my network. You know, Open Society is uh, interviewing for this uh uh, position. You should apply. Um, at the time, I was publishing a youth, uh, not a youth newspaper, uh, a paper for African-American fathers called Proud Papa, and really uh, elevating the positive uh, asset-based uh, uh, qualities of uh, African-American fathers. And uh, I was doing that, and I was leading uh, youth ministries uh, for my church in New Jersey, uh, First Baptist Church of Lincoln Gardens, uh, with uh, Buster Sores, uh as the uh, senior pastor. And so I got a few calls and emails, you should apply, but all of my career, I was on the other side of the philanthropic equation. I was like, nah, I don't think so. And uh, I remember one day uh, driving, um, after I dropped my kids off to school um, down Route 27 uh, in New Jersey, and I got a call from one of my mentors, uh, uh, Jeff Canada. Mm-hmm. And I'd worked with Jeff for a number of years at the Harlem Children's Zone. And, uh, he and said, he's, for those who don't know, Jeffrey Canada is the father of of the Harlem Children's Own, you know, really advancing a lot of important educational initiatives, not only New York City, Harlem, but throughout the country. Yeah, and globally, in fact, you know, in folks fact, from around the true. world have come to take a look at uh, the work that's happening at the Harlem Children's Own. But, you know, Jeff said to me, Sean, I don't know where you are in your career, whether you want to be a publisher or a preacher or what, but there's an opportunity at the Open Society. At the time, it was called the uh, Open Society Institute. And I think you should really take a look at it, right? And so when, like, the chairman of your mentoring board uh, gives you a call, and so I I threw my hat in the ring, and uh, after five uh, interviews, uh, I was selected to uh, lead the campaign for Black Male Achievement, Uh, and it wasn't called that originally. It was originally called uh, the Campaign to Promote Opportunities for African American Men and Boys. And I said, wow, that's a mouthful. It is. And so what I immediately did was, uh, one of the first things I did was uh, change the name of uh, of the campaign. And uh, I think the name was really important because it was based in 
um, asset frame uh, name and narrative. Uh, at the time and still uh, today, you know, black men and boys are uh, viewed in a really deficit uh, uh, frame and, and uh, you know, marginalized uh, men, uh, disconnected dads. Right. And so by naming it the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, it really uh, elevated uh, an affirmative uh, uh, values of uh, positivity and success. And some people couldn't get their heads around. Black males and achievement in the uh, same uh, sentence as the title of the organization. Because, you know, what we know as working in this space is that that's not how they talk about black people in general. And certainly, uh, you know, what was written in The Times was more akin to that. What was written about black men and boys is you know, uh, pathologizing, one-dimensional, yep. not assets-based. But I know a lot of the work that you've been doing, Sean, at the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, you were just hitting upon this, is around the narrative change. Yep. And you could say that you're doing narrative change, but how how, how does that—how um, do you operationalize that? How do you—how uh, did you take— that value, which is so apparent in the work that you do, and make it a reality? Well, so uh, great question. Um, I have a background in uh, publishing and, and, and media. And one of the early mantras, uh, mission mantras of the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, and we have many, was um, becoming masters of our own media. And uh, ironically, we're here doing a podcast interview uh, uh, three months, uh, probably even less, into my tenure at the Open Society Foundations. Uh, I was feeling like it wasn't like a, a good fit, right? Uh, you know, in the hallways, people would stop you. What's your theory of change? And all, you know, that kind. Of, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, and uh, not feeling like I was the right person uh, uh, for the position. And I was looking a lot at my own life and uh, what I had overcome, and say, you know, Sean, you're not too far removed from a lot of the issues and challenges that the data uh, lifts up. And uh, um, you know, God said, play to your strengths. And I remember vividly. Uh, talking to the communications department at Open Society and saying, I want to do a podcast, right? I didn't uh, get permission, and uh, they had set me up in the conference room, and I invited uh, uh, four leaders from across the uh, country, and uh, we sat in a room just like this and around a table, had a conversation um, about black male achievement, what needs to be done. And so when we talk about narrative change— Can I ask you one question? Yes. Do you remember who those four people are? Yes, yes. So okay. uh, Kenneth Braswell. Well, who uh, is the uh, uh, executive director of Fathers Incorporated, uh, Dr. Derek Sweet, mm -hmm. uh, who is the uh, founder of uh, Full Circle uh, Health, um, David Miller, uh, who I was just with in uh, Detroit for the uh, Coalition of Schools Educating Boys of uh, Color. And uh, he's a social entrepreneur and a publisher of uh, Dare to be King curriculum. Uh, then we had... Um, Another brother named Kenneth, I, I'm, his last name is escaping me right now, but he's from D.C. and dealt a lot about uh, with uh, violence prevention uh, in, in D.C. Terrific. I'm thinking there was one more, right? But we just sat around and we had a conversation. Uh, the uh, communications team took it and they posted it. And what was different about uh, how I approached it, because program officers uh, really did not do that kind of programmatic work uh, at the foundation in uh, 2008. 
Um, and I decided to play to my strengths. And also what was interesting uh, when I got to Open Society uh, Foundations, they said to me, take off your direct service hat, right? Uh, our work is exclusively about policy change uh, and uh, addressing systemic and structural uh, barriers. And uh, my pushback was that um, it's not an either or, it's a both. And that what we were going to do was build community and within and create spaces where around the table and in the same spaces were policy advocates, practitioners, philanthropy, government, municipal leaders, grassroots leaders. And that was really the ethos of a, a CBMA was a community building, a strategy. And I often say that while black men and boys um, are the uh, point of departure, narrow angle lens, the wide angle lens is a really a community building strategy, which is inclusive of everyone in the community, uh, black women and girls, LGBTQ community. And we created that space that was really inclusive of, uh, of all. And when you think of the narrative uh, change, it's really providing a platform for folks to uh, tell stories. Uh, some of our earlier investments were uh, investing in films uh, like Beyond the Bricks, Sure. Uh, which told the story of uh, education uh, inequities in uh, New Jersey, um, American Promise, uh, which chronicled, you're familiar yes, with that I film. Uh, we worked uh, with uh, Rada Film and were early investors there. Um, and there were some local folks that uh, we were able to invest in using arts and culture to uh, uh, tell the story. And when I also had to mention uh, the late Dory Maynard, um, we invested in her work and and she created fellowships in uh, five cities for uh, African-American journalists uh, to—she uh, was uh, continuing her father's, uh, her late father's work, uh, Don Maynard, uh, just infusing uh, different perspectives in— uh, you know, journal, you know, news, newsrooms across, uh, across the nation. And so narrative work is—narrative uh, change is a long game. Right. Uh, if you look at uh, traditional corporate media and the billions that are infused into uh, Madison Avenue and uh, strategies to get you to uh, crave a uh, quarter pounder or, or, or buy some Mountain Dew and the repetition uh, of that. But just in short, it's really providing platforms for folks to tell uh, uh, stories that are uh, alternative, not necessarily counter, but alternative narratives from what folks are uh, used to seeing and hearing. Well, thank you for that. Um, so that's one warning. I'm a rambler. No, no, no. So you want you, you can put the timeout sign, it's, cut me no, off at any at uh, any not moment. Not at all. I think it's okay. I think it's important um, because you said this is a long game, and these are not. This is not an easy conversation. So we're, we're not no. expecting. Um, sound bites, but I do want to talk to you um, as a segue. Um, one is that you have said that there is no cavalry to coming to save the day for black men and boys in America. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah and, and what I want to do is uh, just uh, tell the entire uh, mission uh, mantra. And uh, so the first half is what you said, you know, uh, there's no cavalry coming uh, to save the day in our communities. And then uh, we are the iconic leaders that we have been waiting for. 
the curators of the change that we're uh, seeking uh, uh, to mm-hmm. see. And um, what I mean by that is that the leadership that we are looking for and that we need already resides in the hands, the heads, and the hearts of uh, community leaders across the country, right, that may not have been anointed as uh, leaders by institutions exactly. or foundations or, or, or philanthropy. You know, there's this whole notion of the power of positive deviance, right? And uh, the power of positive deviance says exactly that, that the solutions to the world's most intractable problems, you know, reside. In proximity where those problems uh, exist. And so when I say the cavalry is not coming, uh, particularly uh, when we were in philanthropy, as you know, we spun off, that I wanted to make it clear that this was not about any philanthropic saviors uh, paratrooping into uh, uh, communities, right, and and saving the day, that the iconic leaders were there already, and um, that there's no need to wait, right? And what I really loved uh, in my grant making career was hearing folks say, I don't need a grant. I'm going to do this. Well, they didn't say I didn't need a grant, but even if you don't give me a grant, I'm going to be doing the work anyway. And I want to just be a part of this uh, this movement. And that really uh, excited me because the resources Certainly was not enough, right? Uh, I thought, you know, our budget the first year, you know, couple of years was $5 million a year, right? And I was like, oh, wow, we have $5 million a year. And uh, day one after we launched a campaign, I realized this it was is nowhere, yeah. nowhere near no. uh, enough uh, enough dollars. But and I also say that the curators of, of uh, uh, the change we're seeking uh, to see. And uh, when I say that, I think we uh, really need to take on a museum leader's uh, mentality mentality and with collaboration, with uh, sequencing uh, our work in the right place in the right time, and the whole notion of uh, uh, being the uh, curators of the change uh, we're seeking to see is that, you know what, we have everything we need. That's right. Um, Black folks uh, are just amazing, creative, uh, resilient, and that uh, we need not look out of uh, our own communities, our own families, our own selves for a change coming outside. Yes, you need allies. Yes, you need resources. Yes, you need partners. But we got to start uh, uh, with ourselves. And when I say that we're the curators of the change that we're seeking to see, uh, it's aligned with our place-based strategy, which is called a promise of place, right? And one of the mission mantras of that work is that um, your promise of place is wherever you decide to take a stand. I love that. Uh, if you are in Milwaukee, take a stand uh, right on your block in Milwaukee, right? And, you know, we hear uh, folks say, you know, wanting to change the world, right? And this whole wave of social entrepreneurial, uh, uh, dare I say, idealism, I'm going to change the world. And that's good to have that attitude. But if we can't change the uh, 10 square block or the one square block where we are standing, uh, if we can't change that, how are we going to change uh, the world? I do think that is such an important concept because if you're in this space of working in community, foundation, phil, 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 
sorry, philanthropy. Okay. What's Mm -hmm. wrong with me? It's the early morning. Um, That oftentimes uh, the people that are most overlooked are those that are small, scrappy organizations that are indigenous to communities that are doing the most critical work and don't have the access to the mm-hmm. resources, don't know how to approach the funders, but because of their connection to the community, because they understand what needs to be done, they're oftentimes um, the go-to people. Yes. And... Um, I'd like to see more work. So I'm happy that you're doing this work and mm-hmm. understanding. It makes me think of someone like Aisha Sekou from um, Street Corner uh, Resources and uh, Uptown in, mm-hmm. in, in New York. Um, you know, there were these corners where all kinds of incidents were happening and they would take over the corner for the night. Yes. And talking about in circles and community members coming together, talking about I am peace. Mm-hmm. And it was it wasn't this was funded by so and so. It was we want to make a difference. We want to join together with community in saying that no more violence. Yeah. We we are going to do this. We can do this. And it it I participated in it. It was at midnight till, you know, break of dawn. And it was an incredible experience to stand with my neighbors Mm -hmm. in a circle talking about I am peace. And I think we need to envision more of that. And certainly um, with the work that you're doing, I'm really glad that you're taking on this leadership. So relating to to narrative change, talk, talk a bit about the challenges and rewards of fostering leadership within Black youth. Um, what do they need from us? You've talked about what happens in community, but the larger us, what do they need from us um, to be successful leaders? So I would start off with how we see our young people because they see how we see them. And so I would start off with compassion. I would start off with uh, love. I would start off with uh, uh, affirmation. Um, And that, uh, you know, I often say that, uh, you know, our young people don't uh, need saviors, right? They uh, really need believers, right? Believers in their potential and um, believers in who they are able to uh, be. Uh, this last week at the Coalition of Schools Educating Boys of Color uh, Conference, uh, Dr. Sean Genright from uh, San, Fr- San Francisco State University, he was giving a talk and uh, he said that, yeah, we talk about meeting young people where they are, but uh, no, no, I think a parent said this to him, uh, but how about uh, meeting young people at the point of their dreams and uh, their potential, not necessarily of where they Mm. are, yes, but on where they uh, uh, can become. Uh, Young people need safe places to uh, um, uh, experiment and fail uh, when it comes to uh, leadership and adults uh, providing that platform and also uh, just given opportunities to lead. So, you know, I think of my days uh, opening uh, one of the first Beacon Schools in uh, New York City. 
and uh, on 144th Street uh, off of Adam Clayton Powell Boulevard and uh, the Teen Youth Council. And, uh, you know, turning over and saying, you know, it's your school building. Uh, you all organize and figure out what the program is going uh, 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 to be. And that is so empowering for young people. So, so they say they need that. And when you think about uh, just youth development in, in, in general, I think the number one uh, uh, tenant is uh, a relationship with a positive, caring adult. Right. That is the and, you know, we can go around uh, this table here, right, including Miles here, the producer, and we can all tell a story of uh, adults that and parents in, in many cases, but in a lot of cases, uh, not parents, coaches and mentors. Someone that, in the community. Yeah, that believed in us when we didn't believe uh, uh, in, in, in ourselves. And I think the other thing what uh, young people need and the leadership is a, a sense of belonging to feel that uh, they are part of something larger than themselves. Uh, and whether it is a team, whether it is a, a community service uh, a group, uh, gangs provide this for uh, uh, young people. Everybody wants to be down with uh, a crew uh, uh, and uh, a group of folks that, you know, we have a common mission, right? And uh, I remember uh, as a young person playing basketball, Basketball, and uh, we used to get the T-shirts from the Rucker Tournament, the Citywide Tournament, and what that meant having that T-shirt Especially on. Especially that T-shirt. Yes, yes, <laughs> and walking around, right? And let's see, I had it on for five straight days. I needed to wash it. It was funky, right. but uh, I'm like, yes, I'm, I'm playing in Citywide. And uh, that was a sense of a, a, a belonging. And uh, then I, I think, and I touched on this earlier, uh, an opportunity to fail uh, and find out what you are good at, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody uh, is not an athlete, right? Uh, some folks may be interested in graphic design. Some folks uh, may be interested in African dance and drumming, but having an opportunity with a wide range of exposure to uh, find out what you're good at and develop some mastery at it. And, and uh, wow, I'm better at this uh, this year than I was last year. And the sense of that kind of sequential uh, empowerment is uh, amazing. And, and, and the last thing I will say, what young leaders need, and I think this also goes for adults, all of these, uh, is an opportunity to contribute right, to something bigger than yourself, right, and uh, service uh, uh, personally, for me, you know, uh, when I moved from Harlem down to the Upper West Side in my youth, I got involved in this uh, program called the Dome Project. It's amazing, amazing, you know? amazing. And, it, you know, helped to transform my life. And uh, my first uh, summer job was um, cleaning out an abandoned lot on 84th Street between Columbus and uh, uh, Amsterdam Avenues. I know exactly. I used to live on the upper side. I oh, know okay. Exactly and, where it is. and so we turned that, and it was the basketball team, into a community garden, mm -hmm. right? And we went from raking bricks and dead animals and getting uh, railroad ties to garden uh, uh, beds. And it was there for years. And uh, in my late uh, adolescence and into my 20s, every first date that happened to be in the area over there, I would take 
My you would first sling date, them by there? You, you see this garden? Mm. When I was 14 years old, uh, you know, me and my boys, we created this garden, right? That's and that amazing. sense of, and uh, uh, every young person uh, should have that opportunity. And it may be, you know, civic engagement, sure. uh, but there are so many opportunities. And it's our responsibility for adults, as adults, to uh, provide those opportunities for young people and young leadership. We'll be right back with Sean Dove after this break. Marking 400 years since enslaved Africans arrived in Jamestown, the film Black Boys seeks to illuminate the full spectrum of black male humanity in America through an intimate, intergenerational conversation at the intersection of sports, education, and criminal justice. With executive producer Malcolm Jenkins and director Sonia Lohman, Black Boys elevates an urgent and timely conversation on identity, opportunity, and equity to reimagine success for black males in America. This is a Never Whisper Justice film. We must prepare our black boys with skills to survive and thrive. We must also change systems and institutions. They are often reduced to just being a body. You exist in a world where nobody sees you, but everybody sees you. And when they see you, your silhouette doesn't look like you, it's a monster. These young people don't need savers, they need believers. We're back with Sean Dove, CEO of the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. So uh, some of the work that we have been doing here at the McSilver Institute has really focused on looking at the issue of trauma. Um, quite often, black men and boys, as we said at the top um, of our conversation, are really pathologized placed in one-dimensional perspectives that we're never talking about the impact of trauma on the lives of boys. And just by way of example, um, I'm a big cable TV uh, mm-hmm. show lover. I was just watching The Shy, which is an incredible yes, show uh, by Lena Waithe. And um, uh, one of the uh, the young boys on the show loses his father, who he hadn't had a lot of um time with or relationship, but it's still his father. Mm -hmm. And you could tell that he was so affected by what happened, but did not have the appropriate outlet. We're talking about Ronnie. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And then he goes to the young man, I'm sorry, I don't know the character's name, who is the chef, and he realizes something is wrong, and they're just in his home, talking to one another, and he's cutting his hair, and as he's cutting his hair, he starts crying. Incredible. It makes me emotional because it was um, so incredible to watch, but not everyone has that. And a lot of our young men are experiencing all kinds of trauma. And so what can we do um, to, to... really uplift this issue, talk mm-hmm. more about um, ways in which we can support young men and boys who are experiencing this kind of trauma. We're seeing all kinds of stories lately about tragedies, quite honestly, about young black boys, seven, nine years old, killing themselves because they they have been traumatized and terrorized because of racial bullying. Yeah. So, and, and, and not only racial bullying, it was uh, sexual orientation. Yeah. 
Um, just recently, uh, several cases of um, boys um, that were gay and bullied, and they found that their only resort was uh, to take their lives. Um, and that is a national uh, uh, tragedy. We don't talk about a national emergency. And I think it's also important to uh, say that uh, while I lead the campaign for Black Male Achievement, uh, this issue of trauma just crosses over gender and crosses over race. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, trauma is embedded in the uh, soil and ethos of uh, this nation, right? And uh, uh, I I think, one, uh, to get really clear and uh, the issue of white supremacy and being, uh, you know, it's traumatic, right? And uh, this nation— Or realizing that as a young black boy is traumatizing. Yeah. And and you asked how— can we uh, uh, address it right? And so one is, you know, while the trauma exists, right, sometimes we focus too much on the trauma and not enough on the healing, mm-hmm. right? And and how do we focus on, on the healing? Right. I think number two, uh, particularly uh, in our community, how do we demystify uh, asking for help? Um, and demystify mental health services? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we create a groundswell of, um, you know, adults that say, you know what, I'm in therapy. You know what, I've experienced uh, uh, a trauma, yeah. right? And, uh, you know, I have uh, some mentors tell me that, uh, you know, I'm too transparent, right? And, you know, I tell my uh, recovery story, right? It's part of the story of CBMA and uh, coming on 30 years clean. And, uh, um, and yes, I talk about the recovery story, but what led me to that and, you know, picking up my first uh, loose joint at 11 years old and what that, you know, uh, caused for me, right? But uh, saying that it's okay uh, to uh, ask for help. And then I think we have to model that and uh, not make it uh, a stigma in our communities because we're going to address it one way or another, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to uh, uh, address it through uh, certainly antisocial behavior, violence, uh, uh, sex, uh, money. Uh, it is going, you know, our pain is going to uh, uh, leak out. And, uh, you know, I think an epiphany for me when I look at mental health and I look at my own therapy is— Getting to the point that this is not about fixing you, Sean. Right? There is a, 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 a when you meet with your third. This is not like uh, all right, what's wrong with you, and let's fix it. Uh, it's really about discovery and exploration of uh, uh, and, and and being compassionate with ourselves and uh, uh, exploration and discovery of uh, your greater good, right? And I think that, uh, as Sean Wright talks about this also, which was an epiphany for him and his work in young people uh, in the healing circle, saying to him, I'm tired of talking about my trauma. I am not my trauma. I am more than my trauma. Can we talk about my hopes and my dreams, right. not to ignore or sweep under the rug 
what has caused my life to be traumatic, but uh, there's another side. And being able to do that with uh, trusted uh, uh, individuals, and, and, and that's why, you know— Or just someone to turn to, yes. right? Because I do feel that— uh, Oftentimes in our community, like, you know, when you're feeling down, they'll be like, well, what do you got to be sad about? You got a great life. Yeah. You know, I used to have to walk, you know, with no shoes to school and all mm-hmm. these, you know, or um, if you are acting out, right, that they're just piling on the discipline and not really creating mm-hmm. the space to understand, like, what other things are happening. Yeah, getting to and, the roots of yeah. what, what's, what, what's, what's going on. and uh, Or stop crying or why are you crying yeah. or, you know, uh, really attacking someone's um, masculinity mm-hmm. as a young boy, which can have uh, uh, a tremendous effect impact on them for the rest of their lives. And I will say this, uh, I have, uh, over the last, even generation, have seen a shift, particularly um, in the lives of uh, black men and boys. Uh, And I say this in the context of uh, both my uh, father-in-law and biological uh, uh, father um, having separate conversations and with them, and they were telling the story of when they left their families, right? And my biological father was talking about, uh, not because he and my mother were never together, but he eventually uh, got married and started a family. Mm-hmm. And what was eerie was they used the same uh, uh, terminology. They both said that I felt the walls closing in on me, and I just left, right? And... That generation of men, right, uh, did not have permission to say to another man, I need some help. Mm. I am hurting, right? And I think we certainly still have a long ways to go. But I have come up uh, and I have a network of uh, of men um, that— It is okay to cry in front of them. Mm -hmm. It is okay to uh, say, I need uh, help. Um, And this is why I started the newspaper Proud Papa, right? Um, I remember very vividly uh, the uh, day uh, sitting on New Jersey Transit when that idea um, came to me. And it was a weekend at home when uh, I had this high, responsible, high-achieving job. And you may have experienced this. You know, you, you're you at home for the weekend with your family, but you got one foot in the past week and the next foot Absolutely. in the uh, coming week. And I was not present for my children. And I might have done some yelling. And, you know, sometimes you can be in the house but not be present. And my oldest daughter, Nia, uh, she and I would have a routine that we would, like, give each other the notes and like in her lunchbox and um, and I remember this Monday uh, getting on New Jersey Transit and uh, headed in to work into the city uh, to face uh, these responsibilities that you know I felt overwhelmed about and I went into my brief cold case and there was a note from Nia and she said daddy I want you to know that you're the best daddy and all my friends wish they had you for a father and uh, here I was feeling like a bad dad and 
on that train, I just like just started crying, right? And you know, when you're commuting, you, you see the same passengers, uh, you know, the same car, and folks are looking at me as like, look, this brother needs another job, right? He's crying, going to work on Monday, he needs another job. But uh what I realized was that, you know, I was struggling uh in my role as a father. Right. And feeling like I was falling short. Right. And realizing, you know what? I wasn't the only one. Right. And uh, so I created this uh, newspaper. And it wasn't about celebrity dads. It was really about everyday uh, fathers to tell their stories. And it was called uh, uh, A Proud Papa. Uh, And it was stories about our power and our uh, uh, promise and and, and our uh, uh, purpose. And just the ability for men to step out of rigid uh, gender norms, to uh, be able to say, um, I'm hurting and I need help. Uh, a good friend and, and, and brother of mine, uh, Jason Wilson, has mm-hmm. a book out now, Cry Like a Man, mm-hmm. that has really uh, 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 sweeping the nation, and particularly for black men, in addressing uh, uh, toxic masculinity, addressing uh, emotional incarceration. And I think what Jason's book is doing in this moment in time is the same thing that Terry Williams' book did yes. in 2005, Black, Black Pain. Pain. Mm-hmm. And when Terry came out with that article, in essence, that shared her battles with uh, uh, depression, right, and uh, then came out with Black Pain and told stories. And actually, I have an article, uh, a little essay in Black Pain, and the subtitle was really profound. Uh, it was like Black Pain... It just looks like we're not hurting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, vulnerability is a powerful thing, right? And particularly for, uh, I think, black men, um, many of whom that have been raised in toxic environments yeah. that uh, at, you know, eight years old, you know, stop crying, be a man. How are you telling an eight-year-old to be a man? Um, that... You know, we are— uh, This is how you express yourself. You you, you are not allowed to be yes. vulnerable. Stuff it. Right? Stuff it. You've got to be tough to survive, yep. right? And my thing is vulnerability is uh, the new sexy, right? Uh, affirmative. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> I, I do think one of the things that I find most inspiring about what's happening right now, because— it, we are seeing some traction. You're talking about the work that uh, Terry has done a long, a while ago. Um, uh, so many men that are really uh, courageously coming forward and sharing this aspect, because I think people would look at you and be like, you Sean Dove, the, you know, well-known, well-established, doing great work. He's on top of the world. And to share uh, what you have about your family, your recovery, your 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 own, you know, conversations that you have with yourself um, about your your feelings, your emotional well-being, um, uh, you know, Dr. Lindsay, the work that he's doing yes. around at NYU, uh, McSilver around suicidality, Black Boys Film, which you are a part of uh, along um, with Malcolm Jenkins, and to see um, these incredible 
Black men in different spaces being able to come forward, step to the mic, and really share that. And I think that is going to be transformational. And I'm hoping that this continues to gain momentum. And we're seeing, I know, like, Charlemagne the God has come out and Mm -hmm. talked about it. And so many people are revealing this aspect of their lives, as you know, for the McSilver Awards, we're, we're honoring Meek Mill. And he has a song that talks about trauma, mm-hmm. which is, it's an incredible um, uh, piece of art. So I do think as, you know, as just pulling the thread through on this piece of changing the narrative and narrative change, um, it, it's so important that we continue to give space to have these conversations, to create artistic works, mm-hmm. to write about this, to be vulnerable. And uh, there is a freedom in vulnerability. Um, and I think certainly in our community, given all that we have experienced, taking it back, as you said, yeah. 400 years to now, to what we're experiencing in this moment politically as well, it you. You, you not only feel vulnerable, but you also feel scared, yeah. right? So, it, and, and we're adults, so you could imagine for young people getting a, 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 a daily um, deluge on social mm-hmm. media, uh, on TV, it could be really terrifying. So I thank you for um, the work that you continue to do to continue to be vulnerable, to um, create spaces, um, uh, for us to have these conversations. Uh, you said earlier in your work and, and certainly ensuring that the campaign for Black Male Achievement also is working um, in and with communities. Um, uh, while this is uh, changing the narrative for Black boys and men, uh, certainly I couldn't talk about this without talking about uh, black women and girls. So um, how do those journeys happen together? Um, and uh, what are the challenges that we need to address? You know, I think that's an excellent question. And uh, that's a question you I, know s- gonna ask you that. I, 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 I still <laughs> get uh, today and I uh, expect folks to ask that question, and 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 they should, right? And you know, the really interesting thing uh, is what happens is you know when you raise a flag for something and make a declaration, some folks make uh, an assumption that because uh, you're leading a campaign for black men and boys, you are not for black girls, right? And the strategy is inclusive. And as I said earlier, our point of uh, departure angle, uh, narrow angle lens is about black men and boys, right? And so we've been really intentional in being inclusive uh, and uh, lifting up uh, black women, all women. And when you look at our membership, right, we have over uh, 8,000 individual uh, members and almost half of those members are uh, a woman, right? Uh, uh, Most of them women uh, of color and uh, also creating spaces where the campaign for Black Male Achievement allows a black woman to uh, tell their stories. Uh, there have been many uh, instances where we have partnered together and now Black Male uh, reimagined uh, um, 
events, to uh, have conversations uh, around uh, relationships between black men, black women, and really lifting up uh, just that this is not just about black men and boys, right? This is about our entire uh, uh, community. And, and it can't be on separate tracks, right? That's, for me mm. personally, I'm like, you can't talk about black boys without talking about black mothers. And black families. Right. And black communities uh, and black politics and uh, black economic uh, uh, mo- uh, mobility, right? And uh, that's when I, when I said earlier about the uh, curation, right? And how do we get in alignment and in a formation, right? And, and partner with, you know, one organization cannot do it all, right? And there is the mountain uh, before us is just uh, uh, too big, right? And understanding where are the intersecting roles and uh, uh, ways that we can work with not only just, uh, say, black women, right? With the uh, LGBT community. Absolutely. The immigrant uh, uh, community. Uh, the strategy has forever been divide and uh, uh, conquer, right? And so it has to be, you know, where's the intersection? It's like it's fluid. You know, what's the parallel moments with the uh, intersecting and overlaying uh, moments uh uh, in this work. And uh, look, I would not, you know, this is we're coming off Mother's Day, right? I would not be sitting here uh, if not for uh, Deanna Durham, strong Jamaican woman yes. who uh, raised me, but also utilized social capital and community. Absolutely. And uh, that's is, what women do. Yeah, that's, yes. <laughs> yep. That's what women do. Um, and so, uh, I don't think it's an either or. It is a both and. And I would expect, especially a black woman, to continue to push the black leaders and organizations of the black male achievement movement uh, where and, and how do uh, black women and girls uh, fit into uh, uh, your work? I think that's... Um that's so important, and and I, I, I'd love to see more integration um, because I do think some of it, the work is really siloed and in isolation, yep. a lot of these conversations. That's why I'm so excited to do the Changing the Narrative mm-hmm. podcast and get a chance to talk to men because it's not just about Black men and boys, Black women and girls must be a part of this conversation. Yes. So yes. Um, with that being said, Sean Dove, thank you so much for your insights and your words and um, for for being you and um, uh, looking forward to all the great things that the Campaign for Black Male Achievement will do in the future. Thank you. You've been listening to another episode of Black Boys and Men. Changing the Narrative, which is produced by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University. McSilver is committed to creating new knowledge about the root causes of poverty, developing evidence-based interventions to address its consequences, and rapidly translating research findings into action through policy and best practices. Learn more about the McSilver Institute at mcsilver.nyu.edu or on social media at NYU McSilver. Many thanks to Never Whisper Justice for their work on the second season of Black Boys and Men, 
Changing the Narrative. Listeners can find the latest episodes of the podcast series on multiple platforms, including Google Play Music, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. I'm Rose Pierre-Louis. Thank you for listening.